Welcome to Love Your Library, Hampshire Libraries podcast. I'm Kate Price McCarthy with my co-host Mary Stone. Hello, Mary. Hi, Kate. And thanks to our supporter, BorrowBox, our library app that allows you to download ebooks and audiobooks straight to your phone or tablet. All you need is your library membership number and PIN. Kate, how are you getting on in lockdown? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think we're all getting very sick of it now. But it's, I've just been walking down into town and it's you can see it's everything is coming back to life a bit, which is great. People walking around, buying cups of coffee. Um, there's a bit more life to the town now than there was. Yeah, I noticed walking around the park where we're when we were allowed our daily walk, it was um, quite busy. But now I noticed that it seems to be getting busier and busier as more and more people come out and spend time outside. Yeah, thank goodness for the lovely weather. Yes, I know. Thank goodness indeed. It'll be great to see our libraries open again when it's safe for our staff and the people who use them. In fact, we're really busy planning and adapting services so we can safely reopen. And if you follow us on social media, you'll get all the latest updates. You'll also find the latest news on our website too. This episode's title is taken from our guest author's latest book, which is Miss Austen by our guest Jill Hornby. You could describe Jill as being part of the publishing world's royal family. She is, of course, sister of the phenomenally successful Nick Hornby. And quite coincidentally, she is also married to the equally successful writer Robert Harris. Now, the Miss Austen of her book isn't, as you might think, about Hampshire's own Jane Austen, but is actually a novel about Jane's older sister, Cassandra Austen. I met up with Jill before social distancing was introduced to talk about her book. Here she is, reading from an early chapter. And so he spoke. It was not a polished declaration, considering how much time there had been for the planning of it. It was a little halting in places. He had loved her since, well, he could not quite remember. She was the only woman whom he could ever contemplate, um, sharing and so on. But she was charmed all the same. It was entirely in his dear character, and both as wonderful and as ordinary as these moments should be. When it seemed that all words, even the inadequate, were beginning to fail him, she accepted to spare him the struggle. They kissed, and her whole body was consumed by a surge of... What was it exactly? Yes, satisfaction. This was her destiny. Her life was in place. They walked for a little, her arm in his, and discussed the terms of their engagement. In fact, there was only one term that could concern them. It would be long. And those dread words, £250 and per annum, did have to be mentioned. How they wearied them both, but be mentioned they must. He asked for her patience. She promised it without thinking. Cassie was just 22. They had years yet to play with. And patience was, famously, one of her many virtues. They turned back to the house to spread their glad news. It was met with all the exuberant delight that they could have wished for, they're not even a pretense of surprise. For this engagement between Miss Cassandra Austin of Steventon and the young Reverend Tom Fowle of Kimbury had been settled as a public fact long before it was decided by the couple in private. After all, it was the perfect match of the sort that would bring such pleasure to so many. So it must be their future, their one possible happy ending. The universe had agreed on that for them many years before.
I really love this book. It was such a pleasure to spend some days in Jane and Cassandra's world and in their company as well. So thank you so much. I'm so pleased. Thank you for liking it. Good. Can I um, ask you to... Just to start by saying, just give us a little bit about the book, the premise of it. Okay, well, the Miss Austin of the title is not the Miss Austin who everyone bangs on about all the time, mm-hmm. but it's Cassandra Austin, because in their day, she was the Miss Austin, because she was the eldest daughter. And there were eight Austin children, six boys, two girls. Cassandra came first, and she was the model eldest daughter. She was the better looking, she was taller and more elegant, fantastically competent and her mother relied on her enormously. Jane could be a bit um, mercurial and had her nose in a book a lot, whereas uh, Cassandra was a treasure. And like a perfect treasure, when she was 22, she got engaged to the son of their best friends, who was also set to be a vicar. And then tragedy intervened and she never married. And I gather that you had a, a, a personal reason or personal connection, if you like, with Cassandra and the Austins that got you interested in this story in the first place. I did, yes. I live in Berkshire, just over the border, in Kimbury, and we're in an old church house, and it was the vicarage that Cassandra's fiancé grew up in. Um, Cassandra's fiancé's father was George Austin's best friend at Oxford and when George Austin moved to Hampshire and he opened a schoolroom in his attic when he was preparing his own sons for Oxford he thought he might as well knock off a few others and get paid for it. All of the Kimbury boys went down on a trap and did two long terms a year and lived on famille over in Steventon with the Austins and that's how the romance grew. So I live actually not in their house because their house was pulled down in 1859 I live in the house that was put up on the site of it. We have the same footprint and cellar and garden and view. And that is the place to which Cassandra went to stay when she was 22, to meet her in-laws for the first time, to spend her first ever Christmas away from home, which is a big deal, and um, say goodbye to her fiancé early one January morning because he was going off to the West Indies and she didn't know when she was going to see him again. There's a very strong theme through this book about the role of women in Cassandra and Jane's time, their role as carers, and perhaps that still holds somewhat true today. Is this something you feel strongly about? I feel so strongly about it. And I feel str- I felt so strongly about it on Cassandra's behalf, which is why I wanted to write the book. Jane was a genius and changed the face of the English novel, and that is marvellous, and she gets masses of attention. Cassandra was an excellent woman. She did so much. They had a huge family. All those brothers went on off and had eight, nine, eleven children. There were loads of people to look after. There were their elderly parents. There was Jane, indeed, who went through a hard time and, and needed kind of managing. You know, she needed a wife, and Cassandra provided that role. And she was all sorts of brilliant and reliable and trustworthy and a brilliant nurse and caring with the children. And she never got credit from her own family in any of the memoirs that they wrote about the great Jane. And it is true, society as a whole, today still, that we bang on about prime ministers and presidents and famous people. But the people who keep our society going 
are those who, let's face it, most of them women, look after people and do stuff and give up their time and are kind and do things for other people and not only think about themselves. Yeah, it's interesting to, well, I guess this, this book has made me realise that if either Cassandra or Jane had taken a more traditional role in life, then we wouldn't have Jane's writings. And that holds true absolutely for Cassandra as well as Jane. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think um, Cassandra not marrying, her fiancé dying and being plunged into mourning in her 20s was the crucial moment in Jane's life because it enabled Jane not to marry as well because single women could gather together and they were a powerful force. Um, they all had a pittance, but if they put their pittances all in together, then they could afford to live. So Jane immediately had solidarity and it spared her a marriage which there's no reason to suppose she would have made a good match. She didn't have much to recommend her. She wasn't particularly good looking. She was pretty spiky. She saw through people. She was quite intolerant of um, pompous men. She didn't suck up to them or flirt with them. And there's not really any evidence of, of anybody ever particularly wanting her. So if she had got married, it would have been a slightly desperate um, I was going to say Mr. Collins, but actually Mr. Collins was a catch, really, in 19th century terms. He came with an estate. She would probably not have got that, in which case she'd have had a jolly hard life. Marriage wasn't the only happy ending. It did generally end in death in childbirth. If you got married at 24, which is late, most of them got married at 17. If you got married at 24, that's what a good 10 pregnancies. The eighth one would get you. If you got through the first one, you'd be all right for the next few, but you, it would get you further down the line. We were to find out when she was 41 that Jane was very fragile anyway. And if she'd gone for that life, it wouldn't have lasted long and she wouldn't have had time to write more than a letter. Yeah, no, absolutely. It was interesting again to see, to think about the fact that after the sister's father died and they were moving around so much, that Jane didn't write anything at all. It was only once she was settled with Cassandra, with her mother... She was a homebody. Mm. She was a complete homebody. And she needed emotional calm in order to write, in order to make her jokes and invent her romances and kind of clear her sight and her mind. And for a good five years of her life, she had no emotional tranquility whatsoever. It was turbulent and unpleasant. And they were visiting relations so that they could go and get their washing done for a bit and then extending their welcome far too far and and so on and it was a very it wasn't the worst thing that a 19th century woman went through because I mean there were so many pitfalls to that existence that are just terrible but it was awful for her mm. it was her it was her private you know um trauma and it was only when she got to dear Chawton that she was able to take her manuscripts out again which she'd been carrying around, treasuring in her little briefcase all that time from pillar to post. I was interested, you were saying that the, the other independent women provided the safety net because they could then club together mm. and support each other and live together, find a home together. And that sense of uh, female friendship and the bond between sisters, that comes through very strongly in the book. Yes. 
Well, I love writing about that. I find female friendship endlessly interesting. But yeah, they were utterly reliant on one another. Um, historians now call it a spinster cluster. Um, there was a lot of it about after the First World War as well, when women, you know, again, whatever their abilities, they were low paid, even if they were earning. And they would take houses together in order to just have a better way of life. A theme, I guess it's central to the whole book, which is the impossible task of controlling the narrative of your family's history. Yes. Um, and you can see Cassandra's frustration at the way her own story and Jane's story is being retold by others, mm. sometimes not accurately, often not accurately. So did you feel a sense of responsibility that you were playing that role yourself? Yeah, I don't think they'd approve of it. <laughs> <laughs> But it came from the best intentions. Yeah. Cassandra, it was a lot easier to control the truth of your family's history in those days yeah, than it is for us. Right. We yeah. leave so many traces of ourselves all over the place and we should watch ourselves, really. It's not just gossiping relatives and the different way that they, they view things. It's the actual evidence that we leave all around. But Cassandra, by... The most confidential things that Jane ever wrote were all of her letters to Cassandra. And anything interesting she got rid of. So she controlled the narrative not by what she said, but by what she destroyed. Yeah. Which is actually a much more powerful way to do it. Mm. So she left great gaps in Jane's story that these letters would have given us. And it's into those gaps that I put my novel. I enjoyed the reference to the... Um the fossil she finds on yeah. the beach, yes. saying she uh, she wouldn't have hated if he dug up and examined all these years later, and that was well, maybe your... <laughs> she would, yes, that's my little nod to her, and I'm terribly sorry. No, it was quite interesting, because of course it was just the beginning of all of that fossil hunting down mm. in Dorset, and they were there for that then. So they were a team on that one, I think. Cassandra mm. lived long enough to sort it all out, but it, Jane would have approved. The final thing I'm just going to mention is the book jacket, which I absolutely love. It's loved. stunning. It's so stunning. I don't know whose idea it was, but it was lovely. I'll have to describe it because it's got it's this beautiful embroidery that is very much the kind of embroidery that you see in Jane Austen's house, the kind of thing they would have done. Um, but what I really love is that when you open it up and look on the back, there's the actual kind of um, the workings of the embroidery yes. from the back. Yes. And it's it's just such a lovely it's idea. so clever. And it also kind of, there's maybe a bit of me that thinks and there's a kind of insight into how a story is uh, is written as well. Yes. Beautiful yeah. on the outside and then all these details. A lot working. of hard work on the inside. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Jill was great fun to chat to, full of jokes, and she didn't take herself too seriously, which was great. Okay, on to the next section of the podcast, for which we're joined by a member of the library team to talk about two of this month's unlimited titles on BorrowBox. These are audiobooks and ebooks you don't have to wait for, even if loads of other people have borrowed them. So here we are together with Jenny from Yately Library talking about Kate Atkinson's Life After Life and Moon Boy, The Blunder Years, written by Chris O'Dowd and Nick Vincent Murphy. Joining us for this segment of the podcast is Jenny, one of the team from Yately Library. Welcome to the Hampshire Library's podcast, Jenny. Hi, thank you for having me. Hey, I don't know whether I've ever been to Yately Library. Can you tell us a bit about it? 
Yeah, it's a lovely little library. Um, it's got an amazing stock of children's books and it's also the school library. So the school is uh, right attached to the library and the students come in from the school, which is great. Jenny, I was just going to ask you uh, before we start, um, if you're a user of BorrowBox. I am. I'm a much bigger user of BorrowBox since the libraries have been shut, fun- funnily enough. I'm sure like everyone else. Uh, yeah, I've been loving the audiobooks especially. Brilliant. Yeah, me too. I love them. I'm a big fan of an audiobook. I, I tend to stick my headphones in, do a bit of uh, housework, gets gets through it much more quickly. Yes, yeah, that's absolutely. it. Something for a chore. <laughs> and uh, yeah, do you do, do you do the books as well or just audiobooks? Uh, I don't have an ebook reader. I'm not that sure if I should confess that. But, um, yeah. uh, I really like a physical book and I have a lot of physical books of my own and I'm used yeah. to getting them from the library as well. So I haven't done the ebooks on BorrowBox. I have done the e-magazines and the e-comics actually. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. And I have looked yeah. at the the ebooks on there. I think they've got an excellent selection. But uh, for me, it's more of the audiobooks at the moment. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, we we should put a link on to how to how to borrow uh, magazines and, and newspapers and so on. We'll put a link onto the podcast notes with that as well. Mm. All right. Well, now unusually, we're going to be talking about two books in this session. Both of them are available as unlimited titles on BorrowBox in June. That means that uh, uh, a virtually unlimited number of people can borrow the audiobook or the ebook at any one time. And they could really be, hardly be more different titles. We're going to be talking about Kate Atkinson's Life After Life and Chris O'Dowd and Nick Murphy's book, Moon Boy, The Blunder Years. Okay, so first off, we're going to discuss Life After Life. Jenny, can you describe this book for us? I will certainly try. Um, it's a big book and it's got quite a complicated structure. It follows uh, protagonist Ursula and she basically dies over and over again in a very circular manner. Many different types of deaths, many times, and each time she gets to do things slightly differently. And I think the premise really is, if you could keep doing things over it that was almost perfect, uh, would you? Mm. Yes, it is a very unusual structure, I must say. And uh, yeah, it, it found it very hard to get my head around in the end. But I am a, a really big fan of Kate Atkinson. So I, I, I went on and I did love it. Is Jenny, is Kate Atkinson an author that you've read before? Is this a book you'd, you'd already read before it came up as one of our choices? Yes, it was. Yeah, I'd also read uh, Golden Ruins, which is the sequel to this one um, which I'm sure is also very popular with everyone and uh, yeah it was quite a while ago I read it so I had a reread which was fantastic. (laughs) So what was your overall impression of this book? I think at first it can be quite unwieldy and quite hard to get your head around if you're easily confused or if you're having one of those weeks or months where you're easily distracted I'm not sure it's a book for that because you have to remember who's who in each bit and who's survived and who wasn't alive last time but I think overall the effect is amazing I think it's a really ambitious book and I think the circular nature it's a bit like sliding doors the film or Groundhog Mm. Day another film something that fascinates us the kind of nature of time and what if we could control it It it's a really thought-provoking book I really loved it yeah, I, I I think Kate Atkinson is somebody who has the courage and the writing ability to take these incredible leaps of the imagination. She seems really kind of free and un- unlimited in the way she tells stories. She kind of knows what the rules are, but breaks them. So I probably admire her uh, more than any other author I regularly read. I loved Behind the Scenes at the Museum, uh, which we talked about in an earlier podcast, actually, with Andover Library. And I'm a really big fan of her Jackson Brody novels too absolutely love those but yes the the structure is um 
is unusual. And did you did you think it it worked? In yes, I did. Yeah, I think I think in a lesser writer's hands it might not have done, but she's has excellent descriptions in it. Some really beautiful passages, um, and she also knows when not to be too verbose. I think um, it really worked. And I I personally love a World War Two setting. So um, mm. and I guess it's also the 1910s and 1920s. But uh, I love all the all the war war details. I totally agree with that. I was going to say that although I think yeah the structure is a bit bit odd it takes a bit of getting used to. Actually in general I found it fairly easy keeping up with all the different lives. Although when I was getting into one of them it would just end and I felt it a bit cheated. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which is a bit of a shame. Yeah, I think for me I was slightly less interested in the earlier scenes and preferred it when Ursula was older in Germany and all those scenes of her observing the rise of Hitler and the Nazi party were absolutely fascinating. Yes, they saw the um, before the war where um, Jewish people were treated very badly. She covered that very well. Um, the kind of lead up, it didn't just happen overnight. The German years are very interesting in the book. I think possibly the only letdown is that perhaps in the first third where she dies a lot. So she gets to survive a bit longer in the, the latter parts of the book. You don't really care so much about her dying like you would another character because you know she's coming back. So there's a slight oh. loss of tension there. For oh my me. God, that is... Yeah, I was just going to say that is absolutely true. And I would say that was my one problem with this book is that there were so many lives and deaths that I started to become a bit detached from the heroine. Yeah, you get a bit like, oh, go on, die. You can feel the deaths coming up. Um, but again, that's only in the first yeah, and then that's the first half, really, where she really dies loads. You're like, oh, go on, get over the, whatever it is, the plague, the roof, <laughs> the many deaths, and then uh, start again. Yeah, and then the snow would start falling again and should be back at the start. Yeah, in fact, I did find the deaths really hard to deal with, but actually not so much her deaths. It's the deaths of other people in the book. I can remember finding it incred- so traumatic in the section where she's in Germany, that I just had to put it away for a while. I was I was like um, uh, Joey and, and friends. I had to put it in the freezer and, and not think about it for a while because I was just finding it too traumatic. But yeah, it wasn't about her death. It was about those that were close around her. And I did find when I picked it up again that uh, it, the, some of the scenes at the end and her relationship with her father and her brother they're incredibly moving. They're very um, they really they really touch me. Not in a sentimental way, but in a very real way. I kind of felt that because I was feeling a bit detached, that actually the power of the ending, especially the bit around the brother, not giving away any spoilers, didn't have that emotional impact. I don't know, that was maybe just me. But um, I think when someone's like died several times before, you you sort of takes (laughs) it away, um, this, this sense of really being attached to that character. I don't know. I got quite attached to Teddy during the book, which is her brother. And he, he dies quite a lot as well, obviously, as she does. So, uh, yeah, it's quite hard to, it's, it's not an easy book, I would say. I think it's, um, it's not, um, I think it's in that category of what they call Lit Light, a book club book. It's a very good one for provoking discussion. That is it's absolutely true. And that's one of the things I love about it. She doesn't explain, and I didn't want her to explain, I, as, they, as they don't in Groundhog Days. You don't know why it's happening. And I sort of first thought it's this I, the idea that, you know, turn a different corner in your life could be completely different. And so all these lives could be happening, uh, just depending on different decisions that were made. But then you do get this increasing awareness that she can sense it's going on, that she's always feels a strong case sense of deja vu and that she is learning. So this is this is life after life. It isn't lots of different possibilities that yeah. could have happened. It's funny, isn't it? Um, we're kind of left wondering, did these um, lives actually occur or was it all in her imagination? But if she's learning from what happened 
previously, we can assume, I guess, that these were actually happening and just resonating in the next life. And she was able to pick lessons out of those experiences and use them. In fact, to the point where she ends up impacting the Second World War by killing off Hitler. So it's quite interesting to think that you could learn from a past life and change the future. Yes, I like the um, sixth sense, I guess it was, because she wasn't quite, it wasn't like she remembered exactly. She just had this sense of dread um, mm. approaching certain things. And then, and we, we as the reader are shouting, no, don't do that. <laughs> You're going to die. <laughs> um, and she steered herself away, which is, I really like that element. Do you think it sparks any conversation about the afterlife and whether it's real? I mean, did, did you get, did you think about anything like that, Jenny? I didn't. I've got quite strong views that there aren't, isn't any afterlife. So I just I think I enjoyed the mechanism of telling the story. I like the thought that you know, your life could be totally different. It did make me think, what if I'd not done this or if I'd done that differently, where would I be right now? Well, one slight moral objection I had to that, however much I loved the book, was in a sense that gave, you could say that she was to blame for bad things happening to her or that people are to blame for bad things happening to you. Because if you'd only made a different decision or taken a different step, then your life would have been so different. And so it puts blame in people's lives that perhaps I found a bit uncomfortable. Yes, I suppose it's a bit victim-blaming in a way, although the very first death, which is no spoiler because it's on the second page, um, she's a newborn and can't take her first breath, so I guess there's no slightly faultless. It's not really in her control. I was really interested to see that this book was ranked by The Guardian as one of the 20th best books of the 21st century, so it's obviously got a lot of respect from those uh, quarters, and they described it as painfully, joyously real, and I absolutely agree with that. Some readers have said it's just too painful. I've just got a review here, a rather negative review from Goodreads, which says the length, the repetitive scenes, the incredible number of times Ursula dies and is reborn are all tedious and terrible torment to get through. Two thirds in, I found myself offended for having my time wasted. Oh, blimey. It's a bit of a stinging, stinging review. Is that something which you guys have any sympathy with? Um, I think it's written so well that I don't find, didn't find it dull in any way or boring. Um, I get the repetitive issue. If you wanted a quicker read, it would feel quite repetitive and circular. But that is the whole concept, I guess. Okay, so that was Life After Life by Kate Atkinson. Quite remarkable book. We could hardly be more different with our second choice, which is Moon Boy by Chris O'Dowd and Nick Murphy. Uh, Jenny, I believe you read this as well. Tell us all about it. Yes. I absolutely love this book. I'm very enthusiastic. <laughs> it's about Martin Moon. He's a very geeky, awkward, nerdy boy of the 1980s. And he's from Boyle in Ireland, which is not fancy. <laughs> and uh, basically, he's got lots of sisters and he lives in quite a chaotic household. And he's just starting to go through puberty. He's very confused. So he decides to get a, an imaginary friend as a wingman to help him through things. It's very funny. His imaginary friend, if you can imagine Chris O'Dowd's voice, is, is basically Chris O'Dowd. And he is a very dry wit, quite often adult humour for, for a children's book. Some people might not know Chris O'Dowd, but he's the actor. He was um, in the IT crowd. He was in Bridesmaids. He's quite well known, but just wanted to mention that in case anyone wasn't sure. Kate, what did you think? Yeah, I know. I thought it was a real hoot. I think it would be liked by uh, by parents as well as their children. And I listened to the audio book version, which again is is on the unlimited list for for Borrowbox. And 
it's the fantastic characterization. It was originally a TV series, I believe, which you can see that he spent many months developing this character of how he does the imaginary friend. Yeah, it's a very good um, Irish humour in it. You have to be, I think, I don't think you have to be too familiar with the Irish humour, but I did see a few reviews online um, from Americans who were quite baffled. So I'm not sure whether you would have to be British or not to enjoy it. <laughs> I don't know. We should probably mention that there is a few, not adult references, but the language um, has some mild swearing in it, very mild, really, and a few boob references. So uh, parents might want to check out this book before handing it over to children. Might just be something they want to be mindful of. Yes, I thought it was a bit like The Wimpy Kid. It looks like The Wimpy Kid uh, books in terms of all the illustration, but it's more like a, a real weird version of The Wimpy Kid books. And I have a nine-year-old and I he's not quite ready for it yet. There's a lot of puberty talk because the boy in it is 11, 12, and my, my son doesn't know about any of that yet, so I wouldn't give it to him because then he would find out things he's not maybe quite ready for. I'd say it's more for 10 or 11-year-olds, depending on what they're already familiar with. Yeah, I think that's excellent advice actually I think that's spot on that's definitely the age group I would peg this for yes anything from that sort of age to about uh, 40 um yes. <laughs> I, I love all enough. the 80s references because I'm, I'm an 80s child so I thought they were uh, they were spot on but the girl's absolutely. obsession with the scrunchies and the describing his mother as Margaret Thatcher in a turban <laughs> <laughs> with the hair with their hair up in a towel <laughs> Uh, I, I'm sure there must have been a lot of semi-autobiographical stuff in this. Yes, he said it is basically his life. <laughs> his life as a young boy. I particularly like the first line. Is it okay to read that out? Yeah. Yeah, it says, uh, Boyle, the third nipple of Ireland, on a wet Wednesday in the middle of the hot month of the summer holidays. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. I think that really yeah. captures it. Yes, yeah. the, the, yeah. the third nipple <laughs> of Ireland. Poor Boyle, which is a real place. <laughs> Oh, that's I, funny. I, w- one of my favourite bits of the book is is Martin's best friend. Pe- is it Padrick? I don't know how to pronounce it. Say and he's Porrick, yes. Mm. Written with a D, but yeah. Uh, and he's only 10 years old, I think. And he, but he's sort of wise beyond his years. And he works nonstop um, over the summer holidays on his family's farm, which he can't do when he's at school. And uh, at first, every time Martin goes to speak to him, he's involved in some really massive labour huge amount of work at the farm operating massive machinery or milking cows I just thought he was a lovely character yes he's great he introduces Martin to the concept of getting an an IF and an imaginary friend from the I can't remember the full name but something like the imaginary friend corporation league (laughs) (laughs) yeah with all this wonderful detail about where you have to post your letters and what kind of stamp and just it was great really funny and it, yeah, do you know, when I was this age, I knew people who had imaginary friends and I was so jealous of them. I desperately wanted one. So um, I would have definitely tried all these steps. Confession time. I was definitely one of those people who had imaginary friends. Oh, I'm so jealous. Yeah. <laughs> so one to recommend? Uh, yes, definitely. I would definitely be sharing it with my, my son when he's a little bit older and knows about that kind of thing that it covers. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, thank you, Jenny. And we'll have another expert from the library team with us in next month's podcast. Thanks to Jenny from Yately Library. And if you haven't tried an audiobook before, now is very much the time, as it's audiobook month in June. I personally find audiobooks such a fantastic way of accessing all the different novels that we have in our collection. I just managed to like get through so many of them while I'm doing other things. 
Absolutely, and they've got some brilliant uh, performers and actors um, reading some of the audiobooks. I really, uh, Rory Kinnear is one of my favourite actors, and he's, uh, I've listened to him reading any number of audiobooks and borrowbooks. Oh, yeah. In fact, next month, um, as part of our roundtable, we're going to be talking about the wonderful The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie. And the version that I was listening to, because I was listening to the audiobook, was narrated by the amazing Miriam Margulies. And she brought that book to life. It was absolutely incredible. But that's one to watch. She is great. Love Miriam Margulies. So as well as Life After Life and Moon Boy, there's quite a few other new unlimited titles on BorrowBox this month. As ever, you'll find the full list on our podcast notes, but we'll just mention a few here to whet your appetite. So there's The Wayward Girls by Amanda Mason, which we discussed in last month's full-length episode, the one where we interviewed Louise Doughty. Oh, and another of them is Linda LaPlante's Widow's Revenge, which is a follow-up to her best-selling novel, Widows. As always, one of the featured titles for June is also our virtual book club choice. You'll find links to this online reading group, which we call Digital Readers, on the Hampshire Library's Facebook page. This month, it's Little Deaths by Emma Flint, a gripping psychological mystery inspired by real events and set in 1960s New York. So download the book and join the conversation through our Hampshire Library's Facebook group. You'll also find a daily library events and activities on our Facebook page. And on our website, you'll find details of all our online resources, which you can download for free. Don't forget this year's Summer Reading Challenge. It's a great way for primary school children to keep their reading skills up to scratch over summer. We're starting it online this year as youngsters won't be able to come into the library to tell us about the books they've read. And thanks once again to our supporter BorrowBox, our library app that allows you to download ebooks and audiobooks straight to your phone or tablet. All you need is your library membership number and PIN. You'll find all the details on our website. Remember, while our buildings may be closed, we are always open online. I'm Mary Stone. And I'm Kate Price McCarthy. 